0: Grace to the humble. It's a rare thing, humility. Some say it's the strangest flower that blooms. So Father, help us to let you truly cultivate in our hearts a humble attitude, Lord, that is more and more Christ-like the more we walk with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Go before us now, Father. Bless us, we ask in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. How's everyone doing? Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would, turn in them to John 13. We're going to study John 13 verses 1 through 10 tonight. This message is titled True Humility and it's truly a, an amazing passage to study and I feel really super humbled while I was going through it and studying it so hopefully this doesn't sound like a lot of mindless ramblings I've been teaching a lot this week so my brain feels like a little soft so I really I pray that this makes sense tonight John 13, starting with verse 1, says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now. But you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean. So this is really an amazing passage where we see that Jesus Christ is not just the great and awesome God. He is the great and awesome servant. The foot washing described here in John's meal, in John 13, 2, is often what we call the Last Supper. Now, what's amazing about this passage here in John is that we need to know that it does not appear in the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what happens in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, related to the institution of the Lord's Supper, doesn't occur here in John. Which makes a lot of people say, ah, so they're different accounts. No, they're not different accounts. We should understand them to be the exact same meal as in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There, There's not two last suppers. It would be kind of contradictory to call it the last supper and then there's another supper, Right? Yeah, you call it like the second to last supper, and then there'd be the last supper. No, there are no two last suppers. One reason, one good reason that we can make such an identification is that both in John and in the synoptic gospels, Jesus announced at the meal the presence of Judas, who was the betrayer, which resulted in a sense of uneasiness among the disciples. Remember what they did? Remember how the disciples even started to ask? They all asked Jesus one at a time. Lord, is it I? Lord, is is it I? Even Judas and Matthew said, Rabbi, is it I? Now that's amazing because you know what? It shows us something that we probably don't think about a lot. Judas looked just like all the other disciples, didn't he? Here's a secondary way that we absolutely positively on the shadow of a doubt know it's the exact same meal. When he gets up to leave, after Satan had filled his heart, all of the disciples just said, oh, well, Jesus is sending him out to go get some more supplies. It's the exact same account. Now, what I find amazing is that the Lord Jesus in his incarnation, instead of basking in the glory of glory of power and authority, to use some Pauline, you know, imagery, Jesus emptied himself, he humbled himself, and adopted the form here, the posture or role of a true servant. Just how we went over the kenosis theory when we looked at Philippians 2.7, you are looking at true kino'o. You are looking at the emptying or the taking on of a servant. Jesus took that position that none of the other disciples had taken. As indicated in the connection with the story of John the Baptist in John 1.27, touching feet, and I know a lot of people in here are not big on feet. We're going to start a club. We'll have, we'll have jackets and maybe we'll make our own sandals. I don't know. Touching feet was regarded as menial and low slave work. And as such was primary an assignment given to Gentile slaves, women, and children. Think on even John, right? What did John say? There is one coming after me who is so above me, I'm not worthy to unloosen the straps of his sandal. Now, it was slave work. It was lowly, it was even to a certain point, it could be considered demeaning in that culture. And you have to understand something about Jesus's day and age. Free men and women wore sandals, slaves were forced to go barefoot. So it was even a status symbol in Israel. John said, Jesus is so above me, I am not even worthy to undo his sandals. I'm not worthy to do that. His unwillingness, John was unwilling to be categorized in the same context with Jesus, even as his lowest of the lowest slaves. John said, I'm not worthy. I can't do it. That's that's the comparison ratio. You know, what's funny is John the Baptist, who was Jesus's older cousin, said there was no one greater born amongst women than who? John. So don't think all of a sudden John is like some kind of sucker or he's some kind of chump in Israel. He's not. Jesus said, born of women, there are none greater than John. It's a pretty huge distinction for Jesus to make. Now, in this day and age, students were responsible to rabbis or their teachers to perform humble tasks of labor, But touching the feet was clearly not even expected. You didn't even expect your your students in your rabbinic school to do things like take your sandals off, put your sandals on, wash your feet. None of that. In a society that was very conscious of status symbols of shame and honor, such as touching or washing feet, it was an extremely important matter. Remember... Israeli society is an Eastern society, not like the society we live in. We live in the West. This is the Western world. We do not live in an honor and shame society. In the Asian world, it is an honor and shame society. Not much has even changed in 2,000 years when it comes to that. In Israel, one of the worst things you could possibly do would be to dishonor your parents' name, your very Shem, which is the word for name. Name. Your Hashem is your name. And that's funny because in the Jewish Tanakh, in the English translation of it, they don't even say Yahweh. They don't even put Lord in all capital letters like we do in our English Bibles. You know what the word is? Hashem. Literally every time the Yud, the He, the Vuv and the He of God's covenantal name shows up in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Jewish Publication Society Bibles, they put Hashem. It is the name. Because it's named name to be reverenced and honored. We don't talk about it a lot because it's a Western society that we've all grown up in, but if you, if you don't believe me, you go look in Leviticus. If you brought dishonor and shame upon your mother and father, the rest of the village could take you out the city gates and stone you to death. Because of the dishonor you would bring upon your family's Hashem, their name. So we forget about the status symbols. But if you look at Jesus and you see his teachings, you will see that it's clear as day. The the Pharisees who were supposed to be the most honored and wise of all the scholars of the Jewish then world. Jesus called out hard, didn't he? See, you Pharisees love to be called Rabboni, exalted teacher in the marketplace. You make long-winded prayers off on the corner so that people can see you and think how pious you are. You love the best seats in the synagogue. There's nothing humble about any of those things. True greatness in Jesus' economy is a willingness to serve others. That is why sometimes you've heard it said, and I know I've said it before, at the heart of Christianity and being Christ-like, is a heart of humble servitude. It really is. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, then I admonish you, learn to become small in your own. Because arrogance, ego, and pride will all take you down. All of them, they'll all take you down. So we see the unbelievable servant's heart of Messiah Jesus here. So first, Jesus washed their feet because he knew that he would shortly depart from this world. He has identified himself with his people. And today, the beautiful thing is, Jesus still washes the feet of his many disciples. He says that he will depart out of this world, cosmos, often meaning the world system. But here's the problem, guys, we still live in man's world. There's still very much a world system out there beyond the doors of the church. The doors we walk out every day and enter into society. And unfortunately, it's a sin-laden planet. It is a civilization that, like it or not, truth be told, is quite anti-God, anti-Christ, and is under the judgment for it. Because he is leaving the world, Jesus washes their feet. Something they would only understand later. The second reason he does this is that he loved his disciples. He loved them to the end, it says. To the end. Jesus not only loves his own, he died to save his own. And he lives to keep them saved. We rest secure in the ever prominent and strong hands of almighty God. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. Do we stop and meditate sometimes on what a wonderful Savior we have? And the truth of the matter is the Lord Jesus will love us right on to the very end. God loves us with an everlasting love. We cannot even keep him from loving us. This is the truth of Scripture. When Adam and Eve were totally, absolutely arrogant, disobedient, and full-blown rebels in the garden, God comes in. Love comes in and says, where are you? He doesn't beat feet, right? He doesn't come in, oh, Adam, I'm so disappointed in you. No, the gardener didn't abandon his garden, did he? He still hasn't. And I know some of us feel beat up by sin and shame. And I can tell you, the problem is is you gotta not listen to the voice of Satan, who is a liar. Jesus said when he lies, he speaks his own native language. He's a liar. He has been from the beginning. And there is a massive difference, my brothers and sisters, between the corrective voice of the Father and the condemnation of Satan, right? There's a huge difference. God is always angry at sin, ready? And he is always, you know, jubilant over repentance. And that is the unchanging nature of almighty God. I didn't say angry at you. I said angry with sin and jubilant over repentance. And there's nothing you can do that will make God love you today one more iota. People have such rotten theology today in the evangelical church. And I'm not going to rant on it because I promised myself I wouldn't. But it's the truth, you know. It's not, like, it's not like on the greatest days of your life, Jesus is up in heaven. He's got nothing better to do than to keep a giant whiteboard with white, you know, with, with big yellow happy face stickers about how awesome you were today. It's like, oh, look how good Pete was. He led worship. Yeah. happy smiley face. And all of a sudden Pete trips up and he's like really mean and he's nasty. at someone at the cafe. And Jesus comes over with like a spatula and he scrapes it off the heavenly refrigerator. Like pizza loser, take that off. It's just not true. It's just absolutely positively not true. You know what? The, you know what's jacked up over that? That is the very basis of conditional love. I love you when you love me. When you sport every little whim and you know ridiculous idea I have, and you're all about what I am. Well, then I love you. Maybe I'll reciprocate it. I don't really know. That is not unconditional love. That's con- that's the very basis and definition of conditional love. God doesn't love us with a conditional love. It's unconditional love. It's the amazing thing when you look at the cross, because we forget this. The cross is where mercy and justice meet. Why mercy and justice? It's mercy and justice because we all justly deserve everything coming to us outside of Messiah Jesus. We all justly deserve death and hell. We do, all right? I'm just telling you exactly what the Bible says in a nutshell, but Jesus took all of that. And so the justice is he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, 2 Corinthians 5:21. And now we have mercy, everlasting mercy in the name of Christ. The only one who could sacrifice and bring us salvation anyway. Never forget that the cross is where mercy and justice meet. And because of that, no one can snatch you out of Christ's hands. No one. That's why when I hear of people backsliding and doing all these different things, I don't immediately rip my garment and throw dirt on my head as though it's, you know, 4,000 years ago, because I know. I know that any true child of God is coming home. If, if they're legitly regenerated by the Holy Spirit, they're coming home. They're gonna go out, they're gonna taste and see, they're gonna be just like the prodigal. He goes out, everybody loved him while he was throwing $100 bills around. Ah, oh, this guy is awesome. And then his cash kind of dried out and his friend pool, so to speak, dried out. And then all of a sudden he sells himself to some foreigner, and he's feeding pigs, probably with carob pods. And he looks at these, garbage food is the only way to even historically quote it. He looks at this slop and garbage and goes, "Mm mm-mm, good. And he thought, my father's day laborers have bread to spare. I don't know if you've ever really thought on that. There were a lot of different working class people in Jewish society 2,000 years ago. He didn't say the servants in my father's house. He said, my father's day laborers. That means the people who showed up on his father's doorstep banged on the vineyard door and said, can I work here all day? Not part of his normal working crew. None of his douloi just people who were looking to make money for the day. His father was so generous, he paid more than the average denarii, the average silver coin for 12 hard hours of labor. No, he he was uber gracious. The prodigal picks up and he goes back home. See, the world is always gonna leave the child of God destitute. And you will remember that your heavenly father has bread to spare. No better thing than to come home. Brothers and sisters, I kid you not, in my heart of hearts, I want someone to hear this tonight. Don't ever give up on people. Please, the church is the only army on the planet that shoots its wounded right in the head. Let us never be characterized as that. Never give up, never give up on people. I didn't say indulge people in their disgusting, ridiculous, sinful actions. I didn't say coddle and pamper. I didn't, never said any of those things. I don't want to be taken out of context. I said never, ever give up on people. You wonder why? Because Jesus does not give up on us. And this is absolutely, this is absolutely part of humility. The third reason is that another person had entered into the room. There was an uninvited guest present. His name is Satan. We speak of 13 people usually in the upper room, but actually there there were not 13, there were 14 because Satan, he was there, really there. Satan put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And wherever the devil gets into Christian work, others are always affected. And the Lord must wash them and cleanse them. He must wash us if we are to have true fellowship with him again. Because it's about the things that we walk on, which is our feet. And that's why feet are so disgusting and dirty and kick through the mud and everything else. Take a look at the bottom of your shoes tonight. You could find gum. You could find things much, much less pleasant than chewed gum. Right? Watch what you walk in, watch where you walk. And if I can't be a redundant preacher, watch your walk. Notice that this took place at the feast of Pesach, Passover. Supper being ended is literally supper being in progress. There's just a couple manuscripts that have a discrepancy. And I don't know why the new King James went with supper being ended. It wasn't, it was in progress. And that makes the the story even more germane. This is in the middle of the Passover meal called the Seder. So let's take a good, long, hard look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Notice that it says laid aside his garments. Do we fully grasp the gravity of these opening words? Because some of you are going to think that what I say next is absolutely scandalous. Jesus, the Lord of eternity, took off his clothes. All of his clothes. Ergo, he was naked. Taking off all of his earthly garments, he then wrapped a towel, most likely made of linen, because that's what they made towels out of, cotton. And he girded about his waist. How do we know? Well, I can tell you how we know. Jews of Jesus' day only wore two pieces of clothing. You wore a tunic under your cloak. A tunic was a long one-piece garment that was worn next to the skin. And believe it or not, was the thing that kept you actually warm. The cloak was the outer garment. Now, all of us have underwear. I hope we're all wearing it. It's a good thing. They even did 2,000 years ago. How do we know Jesus took off all of his clothes? Because Jews wore two pieces of clothing, and it says he laid aside his garments, plural. Now, before someone goes, oh, my goodness, the indiscretion, there was only 12 other men with Jesus, which in the Jewish society is no indiscretion whatsoever. Had there been one woman there, Jesus never would have done this. But there wasn't. It says clear as day who is there. This is just Jesus and the twelve. They're there together. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 says, did here in John 13 is absolutely 100% a picture of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is almighty God stepping out of heaven and into a body of flesh. It's 100% that picture that Paul absolutely picked up on in Philippians 2:5, because Jesus modeled humility and servanthood in so many ways in this passage. Jesus rose from supper, right? In the middle of the meal when they're celebrating the Passover, Jesus rose from supper, which would have been a place of rest and comfort because that's how Jews ate together. They reclined a table, which means they laid on pillows on the floor. It's a very relaxing way to sit down and eat a meal together. He rose from supper, a place of rest and comfort, just as the Lord Jesus rose from his throne in heaven, which is a place of rest and comfort, and came to the earth, Christ laid aside his garments and he wrapped himself with a towel. The Lord Jesus in his incarnation veiled his glory by putting on a human body. He incarnated. He forever wed his deity to humanity in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It's a beautiful word picture, the whole thing. Jesus takes a towel and he girds himself. He wraps it around his waist showing himself ready to serve. Jesus is a man of action. This is why he's our perfect example. Christ took the form of a servant for this is how he served us. Next, Jesus takes water and he pours it into a basin ready to clean the filthy feet of his disciples. And then next, he poured out his blood to cleanse us from the guilt and penalty of sin and shame. One of the things he does next, I think, is most germane. As Jesus would have washed his disciples' feet, he wiped the filth and dirt off of the disciples' feet onto the towel, which was girded and now one with him. Dirty feet getting clean, but where does the muck and dirt end up? It is upon Christ and the linen towel with which he was girded. Jesus sat down again after this. That's what it tells us in John 13:12. After washing the disciples' feet, and lastly, after he had risen from the dead and spent 40 days with his disciples, Jesus ascended back to the right hand of God, the Father, where he sat down again and invites us to enter into rest, like Hebrews 4:10 tells us. Jesus did something that no other priest in all of Israel ever did. He made atonement, sacrificing himself, and then ascended back to heaven and sat down. You'll notice as you go through the book of Exodus, there's one piece of furniture kind of conspicuously missing from the tabernacle. You've got the bronze laver for washing. You've got the altar of sacrifice where sacrifices are made. And there's forks and all kinds of things. And there's there's even a fancy ashtray to sweep up the things. And you go inside and there's a candelabra to bring light inside the tabernacle. And there's an altar of incense. And beyond the curtain, the veil is the Holy of Holies. And there even the Shekinah glory of God would come and sit between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. But what was not inside the tabernacle were chairs. There was even a table of showbread so that they could eat. But they would have ate standing. No chairs in the tabernacle. No chairs in the first temple. No chairs in the second temple. That's because the work of the priest was never done. And everything they did was only temporary. In Hebrew, the word is kefar. Kefar means a temporary covering. It's just a covering. Jesus made an atonement which means that he is the propitiation of our sins and not just our sins, the sins of the whole world, as 1 John 2 2 says. Jesus could sit down because the work was finished and all who have trusted in Christ will also cease from workings just as he ceased from his. That's the beauty of tying in Hebrews 4.10 there. There is no work to be done. Which is what I said, you can't make Jesus love you one more iota than he already loves you. That is the trap of a works based of salvation. How can you know? How can you know when you've done enough? Maybe just one more teeny tiny little good work will finally put a smile on Jesus' face. How do you know? You drive yourself nuts with that. You could never know. And that's why it's grace and not works. Every religion on the planet says, this is what you have to do, you have to do this, do that, do, do, do. And biblical Christianity says, it's done. You believe. That's amazing. Let's look at verses six through eight. And then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. I'm gonna level with you. Peter's disgust with this act is actually normal. Humanly speaking, for that day and age, having at this point been a committed student of Yeshua of Nazareth for three years. But I'll tell you what the truth of the matter really is, at least I think it is. Peter was cut to the heart. Often we see people overreact and get nasty and bolsterous and loud and everything, but it usually means someone is cut to the heart. It's an old Irish proverb, but one I really like, states... If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that barks the loudest is the one you hit with the rock. I usually find that. Most people who have big problems with messages most pastors teach are just the ones who are cut to the heart by them. So they come over to bark. But we just know you're a dog hit with a rock. I just didn't call anyone a dog in a very negative way. I want that to be clear. I think Peter's cut to the heart. He knew that either he, and I definitely think it should have been him as he heads the list of all of the apostles and disciples everywhere. You'll always find Peter and Andrew and James and John. Peter and Andrew and James and John. Peter and John and Andrew. Other disciples will go in different orders. Peter's always on top. He's the first among equals, if you would. Peter knew that either he or one of the other disciples should have washed everyone's feet at the beginning of the meal, not at the end, not in the middle, and it most certainly should not have been their rabbi, Jesus. Because again, to to recline at table culturally means to lay down in a semicircle and eat off of a mat that has been placed on the floor. And if you're laying semicircle, guess what? Without fail, someone's feet are a couple inches from your face. And your feet, hopefully clean and washed at this point, is going to be very close to someone's face. I had the pleasure of doing this in Israel, and yet the owner of the home washed all of our feet. Glory, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. You don't want to be laying down with someone's gnarly, stinky Funkified, toe cheese infested, nasty piggies just waving a couple, three, four inches from your face while you're eating. I don't care how delicious the meal is, that is not tantalizing. It's gross. And they had already sat down. No one thought to do it. Big word, no one humbled themselves to do it. I think it was probably pride and arrogance. Look at us. We are the inner 12. Many have achieved in Israel, but no one like us. Jesus chose us. I think that Jesus personally spent more time with Peter, James, and John because they rode the little bus to school. They were really all kinds of special. Peter is always saying the dumbest things on the planet. And the sons of thunders get the nickname because a Samaritan village who would not accept Jesus was the Messiah, they wanted to know if they could call down fire from heaven on them like Elijah. And when Jesus calls them Bonegerus, the sons of thunder, it's not a positive thing. It's extremely negative and derogatory. I also read one time in one of Paul's writings that not many wise nor noble or Strong are called. Amen? It's the truth. I think Jesus took a bunch of ordinary men, roughly 12, to transform a world by supernatural means so that no one could say, well, of course Jesus transformed the world. He went to the leading rabbinic schools and he took the top scholars and he grabbed all of the rabbinic students, had a 4.0. Yeah, of course, duh. No, he didn't do that at all. He took 12 ordinary men, some of them common fishermen from the Galilee. And that's so that all of the glory goes to God. It's been speculated that Jesus perhaps washed Peter's feet last. And in the text, it kind of shows that. And that Peter protests to show how great Jesus was and that He should never be washing anyone's dirty feet. Peter puts on a show there, you'll never wash my feet. Perhaps thinking maybe Jesus is going to say, See everybody, Peter had it right. Peter didn't have it right. Jesus told Peter, You don't understand what I am doing now. However, you will later. So this is entirely true, I find, with the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, We walk different scenarios and seasons in life. And sometimes we simply just do not understand what God is doing. Has anyone been there? You just don't get it. You wake up shaking your head. You shake your head throughout the day. And you shake your head as you put it on your pillow at night. You just don't understand. But I admonish you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you would but wait. Wait on the Lord. Humble yourself and be patient. Have faith and one day you will understand some of the things you've been walking and going through with greater clarity. God will do it. It's very true that good things come to those who wait. But this answer was not good enough for Peter. It just wasn't good enough. Peter said, no, You'll never wash my feet. I told you, you gotta love Peter. If anyone wants to hang out with him more than anyone I know, it's me. Just, I wanna compare stupid stories about how stupid we could be. But I'm pretty sure in heaven, we're not gonna talk about stupid stories. So it's just a dumb fantasy. To which Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That's some pretty sobering words right there. This brings up an all-too-often-forgotten fact amongst many people on the planet. No one on earth has the ability to cleanse themselves. Nobody. None are good in and of themselves. None are righteous. We need Christ Jesus to cleanse us. Paul tried to get us to see this. In Romans 3:10 through20, Paul is stringing pearls, a rabbinic technique where you take many different parts of the Old Testament Tanakh, and you put them together. He says, "As it is written, "There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one." Their throat is an empty tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their way. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is telling everyone 2,000 years ago who were overly Judeo-centric in their thinking. If you think you're keeping the law, you're kidding yourself. You're not. This is the consignment of all humanity. This is outside of God's sovereign grace. This is humanity. And this is what it looks like. And I love when people tell me, people are basically good. Yeah, turn on the news at nine. See how good it is. Why is crime perpetually on the rise? Nasty, violent crime. Horrific crime. Guy walked into McDonald's a couple weeks ago. Robbed the girl and then shot her in the head for no apparent reason. He already robbed her; he had the money he wanted. This is humanity. Left to ourselves, we are a darn mess. And if Romans three twenty is where it ended, it'd be pretty depressing. But thank God, this is not where it ends. Romans eleven thirty two and through thirty six says, "For God has committed them all the disobedience that He might have mercy on all." And then Paul breaks into a song. I kid you not. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has given to him? And it should not be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That is a summation of what Paul had, further, had had previously said all throughout Romans 3. Yeah, we, this is all of humanity. None good, none righteous, no, not one. The poison of ass under their tongues. They practice deceit. They run to bloodshed. But what about God? But what about God? For God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. And that means that anyone with the eyes of faith Who turns is saved. All who call upon the name of the the Lord God shall be saved. Paul said, if you believe in your heart that God the Father raised him from the dead and you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Romans 10. This is the amazing grace of God. This is the later that Peter couldn't fathom. This is the later that Jesus talked about. What I am doing now, you don't understand now, but you will understand later. How do we know Peter understood it so well? He didn't understand it in the moment, but later he most certainly did. Peter writes two New Testament epistles. I would encourage you to study both back to back. They're amazing. Probably some of my favorite verses in the New Testament are in first and second Peter. I didn't say they were my favorite books. I said some of my favorite verses. 1 Peter 3, 21 through 23, not 213. The verse isn't that big. But someday I'll learn how to type slow and use spell check. Pray for me. Verses 21 through 23, Peter said, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor is deceit found in his mouth, whom when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And I've got to tell you, brothers and sisters, in my mind's eye, I believe as Peter is writing this, he must have a vivid memory of the Lord Jesus Christ washing his feet and taking all the dirt of his foot and rubbing it there on the towel girded to his body. Because that is what Jesus did on the tree. He became a, a, a curse for us. For cursed is all who are hanged on a tree, but we were all under the curse of the law. So what did Jesus do? He became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. Because by the means of the law, no man will be justified, nor a woman. Because none of us can keep the law. Jesus, who is perfect, is the absolute embodiment and fulfillment of the law. Last two verses. John 13, 9 and 10. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For Judas the betrayer was still there. You got to love Peter, right? Look at, like, you know, ever-changing Peter. You know, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, you don't get it, Pete. You don't have a part of it. Lord, Lord, give me a shower. It's like... Boy, they. Peter is still reluctant to let Jesus do what he wants to do. Did you catch that? Jesus is trying to wash Peter's feet. Peter says, No way. Jesus said, If I don't wash your feet, you have no place for me. And then here's Peter again, captain stipulation. Well, Lord, don't do that. I mean, you know, my head and my hands, you know. It's like he starts singing that stupid song of us, you know, head, shoulders, knees, and toes, knees and toes. It's like, Peter's going to tell Jesus what to do. Brothers and sisters, like I tell you right now, stop telling God what to do in your relationship, okay? I used to have a bumper sticker on the back of my car, but then I sold my car, which was good because I needed the money. But it basically said, quit applying for God's position. It's filled. It's not necessary. It's good to know who we are. Peter wants to tell Jesus what to do. Now, though Jesus is the servant of all, he is still God in the flesh. And Peter needed to gently be reminded of that. And it's okay because Jesus will not allow Peter to dominate or monopolize the situation. And he sets things correct. Rather gently and lovingly, Peter, if you're clean, you're clean. Okay? You just got to wash your feet, buddy. If you're clean, you're clean. Sometimes we show a servant's heart by accepting the service of others for us. If we only serve and refuse to be served, it can be a sign of deeply rooted and well-hidden pride. Beware of the leader who has to do everything. I'm being super honest with you. As a pastor and as a leader, Beware of the leader who can't let go of the reins of any single thing, who must be part of every single decision, every single meeting, every single this, and every single that. Just watch out. Beware of that and ask why. We need to humble ourselves and let other people serve too. That in and of itself is the mark of humility, and it's a mark of maturity. I like what Dr. Temple says. He said, man's humility does not begin with the giving of service. It begins with the readiness to receive it. For there can be much pride and condescension in our giving of service. Sometimes you can serve and look like you're doing it in all the right way and do it with all the wrong heart. Isn't it true? Jesus tells Peter simply, If you've already taken a bath, you are completely clean. The only thing you need is to clean the things that you walk upon, your feet, Peter. You're walking out in the dusty, unpaved Judean streets, where most of the animals are not house trained. They go where they want, watch where you walk. You could find yourself in a real nasty situation. I rode a camel. In Israel, I am so absolutely glad I was on top and not underneath. You guys ever realize what an unbelievably smelly animal camels are? This camel stopped and pooped, and I'm kidding you not, I think he pooped like nine pounds. Like if I just had to give it like a weight, like just like a weight ratio, like solidly, it was like a good eight and a half, nine pounds of poop just in the middle of the road. And I'm thinking, You know there's like eight camels coming up behind us, and you know one of those camels is going to step in that, and that's why they all smell like poop. I finally figured it out. It didn't take long. You could get your feet pretty funkified in ancient Israel. So Pete, that's what you need to clean. Clean that that which you walk upon. See, metaphorically speaking, it's, it's a little different today in modernity. We need to let Jesus wash the thing most attacked by the world today, and it's our minds. Because we live in a digital age where we're bombarded with thousands of images, half of which we don't even see coming, that are subliminally planted in there. Let the Lord Jesus Christ wash your mind. I close with Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see, this is why pastors are constantly telling you to read your Bible. You guys all think that we get kickback from like, nelson publishing or something they don't send us bibles they don't send us dividend checks they don't even ask us if you people are reading your bibles they don't all they want to do is sell books they're a publishing house The reason pastors are constantly saying these things is because we've come to the realization that the only way to be transformed by the renewing of your mind is to let the almighty word of the living God wash afresh your dirty brain. That's what we all need. We don't just preach these things, we believe these things. I need to let the refreshing water of God's word wash over me and let it wash over. And very often before I open my Bibles, I I literally pray that, Lord God, whatever is unclean in me, Lord God, whatever my eyes have taken in, Lord God, whatever's floating around in this sick, psychotic mind of mine, please, please God, wash it afresh with your word because your word is truth and the truth will always set you free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, humility is such a difficult and spicy kind of thing. It, it, it causes controversy and people get into arguments about it and they show no humility in that, Lord. That's not, that's not humble at all. We want to have a contrite and broken spirit in this world. Father God, we want to be like Jesus. Jesus there was no one more gentle and meek and humble than your son. And so Father, what we're praying is, make us more like Jesus. When he was attacked and reviled, opened not his mouth, he was silent like a lamb is silent before their shears. Jesus is teaching as if someone strikes you on the right side of your face, turn the other cheek. If verbally offended and assaulted, take a second offense. Oh, Lord God, we need you, the great potter, to take us, the clay that we are, and put us back on your spinning wheel, oh God. And mold us and make us and shape us more and more a little day into the glorious image of Messiah Jesus. Father, we're blown away, we're humbled, we're amazed that you love us with an everlasting, unconditional love you do this for us, may we not fight you. May we yield to the work of the Spirit's grace. Go before us even now, Lord God, as we break into small groups, oh God, that we would love and cherish and nourish one another, Lord, that we would discuss these things, discuss humility in a practical and beneficial way, Lord God, that we would love each other with the love of Christ, that we would pray for each other, those of us who are hurting, Lord, that we would come around each other and that we would all grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus a little more tonight, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. We have great faith in you, and it is ever so clear. We love you simply because you've loved us first. In Jesus Christ's holy and matchless name, and all of God's family said, amen. So I got a couple questions